You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. This episode is brought to you by Shape and Foster, a lifestyle development app that provides monthly actionable insight from six experts in mental health, financial planning, nutrition, fitness, yoga, and a life coach. It is a one-stop shop for self-improvement. The app provides a proactive and informed approach to improving your mental well-being by enabling practices and habits to be built. I'm going through the same onboarding process myself, so join me as I acquire the amazing benefits Shape and Foster has to offer. With the help of professionals and life coaches, I get insight, improved self-awareness, education, and understanding so I can eat better, cook better, and increase development as an individual. I'm kicking off 2021 by actually doing something about my resolutions because lifestyle development is about enhancing your quality of life by improving awareness, identity, and potential. One community of actionable insight. Learn from six pillars essential to a healthy heart and healthy mind in one unique app. Visit shapeandfoster.com for your free 14-day trial. That website, again, is shapeandfoster.com. I am a bedroom Beethoven. (laughs) Hey, for once I don't have to stray too far from my backyard. Austin, Texas is in the house, everyone, as I welcome you to episode 102 of the podcast. My guests this week are... This is David uh, and David Butler. I'm half of uh, Missio and I play multi-instruments, I guess, uh, and and background is an audio engineer. Mainly play bass and synth on stage. Yeah, my name is Matthew, and I'm the frontman of Missio, the other half of the duo. And uh, same thing, just kind of play multi-instrument, whatever's necessary for us at the time, uh, depending on the record. And some of the people we've been able to collaborate with in the in the past have been Houston legend Paul Wall, Zarface, uh, specifically Esoteric. Which is uh, it's esoteric seven L and then inspected that. Mizio is the brainchild of Matthew, who originally from Colorado, began playing music at the age of six when he started learning classical piano. We chat about traveling the globe in choir and reaching somewhat of a musical crossroads at the tender age of 20. As he ventures out of Colorado, begins to write songs in a retro airstream, removed from the realities of everyday life. 
Then I turn to David as we talk about powerful content within Mizio songs, breaking his neck, literally. And as I put a nice bow on all the topics, we cross the finish line with what emerged at the end of this journey as Mizio. Returning overseas earlier this year, they race home on the final day before the U.S. borders were closed due to the pandemic. But they're here, and I'm able to speak with them in the live music capital of the world. Before we get to the conversation, though, I thank everyone who is buying merch or donating to the Patreon. Those are the things that help the show out, continue to pump out content while motivating this content creator to bring you the stories you like and need to know the musicians that you know and love. You can find the show on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and the website is BedroomBeethoven's.com. And wherever you listen to podcasts, be it Pandora or Spotify, maybe Apple Podcasts is your jam. Leave me a five-star review and support your boy. Thanks for tuning in. Episode 102. Uh, so my job right now is to give you guys a, like a very unique interview. So David, first question, how did you break your neck? Awesome. Awesome start. Uh, that's cool that you know that. On one hand, I tend to forget about that moment in my life because it was just such a traumatic and massive experience. This was I was graduating. I broke my neck. I was a senior in high school. I was at my senior high school graduation party, which I grew up uh, in Lake, Lake Jackson, which is uh, the south of, south of Houston. Um, and so we were partying on the beach. Thank God I was on the beach because I was uh, ended up like horse playing with uh, uh, my friends. We were just wrestling around and whatever, and I ended up getting dropped on my head, shattered my uh, vertebrae. I, I still don't really understand exactly how I came out so unaffected by it. It was like the same exact injury like Christopher Reeves had uh, Superman from way back in the day that paralyzed him. And so, yeah, I went in, had a crazy miraculous surgery where they like literally were removing shards of my bone from my uh, spinal cord. And uh, all the while, like the worst I ever had was I lost like some feeling in my arms temporarily and then it all came back though and yeah man it was a it was a gnarly way to start college in a, in a huge neck brace and like feeling like a total loser like <laughs> not wanting to talk to anybody I remember going to my college orientation like literally didn't leave my room because I didn't want to talk to anybody now you, you mentioned uh Lake Jackson that is I, I always feel like that place is going to be marred with the fact that Selena was from there Truth, truth, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's 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 shown up on the map a few times most recently because it had some brain eating uh bacteria in the water supply. I was like literally reading about my little, little small hometown in the New York Times. Like this was like a few months ago. It was insane. So it's always bad news that, that, that I don't know, man. They got some weird juju happening there, man. It, it's uh, but hey, you know, it's home. <laughs> Well, Matthew and I were talking about like this because I, I grew up in the Austin area. We were talking about you know Georgetown and all. I actually worked at the same place as uh, your dad in Round Rock. I worked at Dell three times, and I hate that place. <laughs> Dude, he he hated that place I as hate well. Dell. <laughs> uh, the the like the amount that it, it's frustrating for me as his son, you know, watching him because he is one of the hardest workers I've ever met. And to see him get taken advantage of time and time and time again by these people who just don't give a single shit about their employees, 
uh, is really unfortunate. Um, just, I, I mean, he's, he's always wants to give his best. So he ended up leaving Dell a couple of years ago and he's much happier, but it's seemingly everybody that I talk to that comes from there says the same thing, which just, you know, sucks for a company. Yeah, yeah, you're you're preaching to the choir on that one. Uh, but luckily, you know, you you've you've escaped the corporate world. Namizio, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. It wasn't always a duo, Matthew. You were you were Mizio, so it seemed like Mizio could be an ideology, perhaps a movement. You know, Mizio could be a trio, a, a foursome, or or does the success of the band come from the symbiote of y'all's process? Maybe a a third member like uh, like Glitch Mob, it, it wouldn't work. There'd be too many cooks in the kitchen. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I think where both David and I, my, or both David and I came from, were playing in bands where there were lots of members. And one of the most frustrating things is that it's so hard to get anything done because you have to take into consideration everybody's opinion. Everyone has a part that they have to play, and um, it can be tough when you're making larger decisions. T- um, so kind of the reason why I wanted to start my own thing was I was exhausted from doing that. And I just wanted to make music and have no one else's opinion, kind of just start from scratch and, and do what I've wanted to do. And then it slowly morphed into David kind of joining the band and that whole process. But I think what's cool, and I love that you said it, it could be a movement is because it, it kind of is. Like we have a third member that David was talking about earlier, Dwight Baker, who's kind of a hidden third member, but he's such a genius and is so talented and has so much experience in this industry that he's been able to help us a lot of the way. But at the same time, we've also discussed in the future, if we're ever playing big shows or festivals or whatever, and we wanted to bring a couple more people on stage, we could do that. If we wanted to add, you know, a real fucking whoever. It could kind of be a collective if we wanted, but I think what what is special about what we do together as a duo is that we have the same work ethic, which has been amazing. We approach music the same way, which is also amazing. And we both kind of have a, a similar vision. It's like very, very few times where we will kind of go up head to head on a decision. So um, less cooks in the kitchen is is definitely preferred for the way that our work styles go. Now, back when you were when you were a kid, before the whole Mizio thing, you were you were touring the country, uh, like choir. I had no idea that kid choir was such big business. Yes, I, I actually did not either. Um, it was kind of my parents, I'll say, forced uh, me into that world a little bit because I think they saw my talent early on, and I obviously didn't. I could have cared less. But what was cool is is I had initially tried out for this choir. It was the Colorado Springs Children's Choir. And they, they had like five or six different groups within the choir. And so as you grew older, it got better. You got to move up in these different groups. And initially, I, I remember studying so hard to be in this one particular group and doing things all day. Like like you would have to play. My, my mom would actually sit down and play chords and I couldn't look. And I'd have to sing back certain pitches to her via those chords. And so... I worked my ass off. And then when I went to the audition, I actually got to, uh, or I got invited to do the group above that, which was very unexpected. And part of being in that group was we were able to travel the world. And so we, uh, as an eighth grader, I was traveling to New Zealand and Australia and Japan and playing in the Sydney Opera House and playing at the World Market in Japan and um, 
I mean, we were every single weekend gone traveling in Colorado or California or kind of all over the place. So yeah, I just, I love that your parents kind of forced you into that. And so like every day you, you woke up and you were reluctantly successful at something. I just find that yes. to be kind of hilarious. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, because I, I lived in Austin, uh, uh, I grew up in this whole area. Uh, David, I know I know a few things about you because I remember being at South by Southwest and I heard a song called Apples and Oranges and I swear on my uh, life, yes. I, I thought it was Maroon 5 and I went to go see <laughs> who it was and lo and behold, I see a guy with a grunge background and a soul <laughs> band that's being compared to Gary Clark Jr. at the time. I've taken the scenic route through the music business, uh, I would say, um, through my years of, all my years of being in bands. Apples and oranges we are, like oil and water, yeah we are. We don't mix, but I guess it's some kind of trick the way we stick together. Some, some great and, and probably overly romanticized memories from South by Southwest. And then also a lot of like brutal memories of South by Southwest as well. <laughs> Well, the the person that you were in the band with, Gerard Green, you knew him since kindergarten. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And you had all this great press and everything. Ultimately, what made you guys part ways? Man, you know, that story is woven into the beginning of what Missio is because essentially um, that band um, was just so talented. Um, all of us had a lot of uh, things to bring to the table and including work ethic and grind and all that stuff. And I had been grinding really hard, like with that band, um, writing, touring, but like really like, like indie touring, like in a van uh, regionally in Texas, like very small level stuff, but just as grind, just as difficult on some level. And I think, you know, we had just been, I think we were like six, maybe six years into the band. And I think um, a lot of people's lives just kind of, uh, we were growing older and, you know, we were getting further removed from college and things like that. And a lot of people just, you know, made life decisions. And I was kind of left one of the, the last few that was just like seemingly willing the band forward, right? And, uh, booking shows, doing all this stuff. And I was just so burnt out. Um, not, not ever by the music, but by that grind. And so at that time I was also producing records pretty like that. I had left my corporate job and I was trying to pay my bills by producing records. Um, so, and I was working with Dwight, Dwight Baker, who's the third guy, the third Missio guy, Matthew mentioned. And, uh, yeah, so I was just like making a move at that point to full-time producing. Um, and so I decided to leave and that was kind of the last nail in the coffin for that band. But that, that was the moment I think maybe like, I, it couldn't have been more than like a few months later that, um, uh, Missio, uh, that Matthew was talking to me about doing the Missio project, uh, and about not necessarily joining, like doing the Missio. Like I was just involved as a producer engineer in the beginning because we had had previous work experience. Um, I had produced his previous band, uh, done some work together and so yeah i mean it's all like 
in Austin, it's there's like I joke about it all the time, but it's like incestuous music community of like people who actually are doing real work. You know, we we cross ways in so many levels. You know, um, in so many different paths. So, uh, so correct me if I'm wrong, but so if it wasn't for that band maybe Dwight Baker wouldn't be mixing all the Mizio music right now because that... Oh, hell no. That that was how I met Dwight Baker. I mean, my my first introduction to Dwight Baker was through my band. We were looking for a guy to record our record because I had been recording our records all the time and I was like looking for someone to take us to the next level and like, because I knew I was really limited at that point. I I was, I knew nothing about, I mean, anything. I was just recording records in my house at the time uh trying to piece together gear so he was like he was recognized at that time as like i mean and still is like legit a-list number one dude around austin to to make a record well dwight has a theory called the darker the weather the better the man which i think many bands adapt and for me corn comes to mind because they came out with their debut album and they talked about sexual abuse and drug abuse and they got successful and then after three or four releases the audiences weren't gelling with what their with their music and their message so they went back into the studio with the original producer and haze them to try to get that sound back. And then the lead singer, Jonathan Davis, reflected back seven years later saying that he feels that that album was the band's biggest mistake, saying that going backwards rather than forwards might have been the biggest mistake they made as a band. And I think it would have been a much better album if the producer hadn't been so fucking hard on us and let us have a bit of fun. So I, I don't know, because Dwight has this thing where, you know, if, if we can talk about the painful stuff in our life, it might translate into better songwriting. It might translate to better production. How do you guys feel about that? Dude, honestly, uh, like you saying that sparked uh, a little bit of anger inside of me because there, there's no one is no one else is responsible for your own emotions. Right. So it, it's it's for, for him to say that it's it's his band. You know, he needs to make whatever he wants to make happen, happen. You can't rely on a producer. So even though I understand where they're coming from, where, you know, if you trust somebody a lot, especially a a big producer, that if he says something, um, you want to listen. But at the same time, Dave and I say it all the time, you have to trust your gut in this industry specifically, because so many people are trying to get your money, your talent, your position, you are you are constantly in competition essentially. And if you are not trusting your gut and making decisions for what is best for your own mental health and your own stability as an artist, you will have no skin in the game. Um, And I notice it with other artists all the time because I think the tendency for a lot of people can be, I need to please my fans because my fans help me do what I do. And, And you have to be careful going down that road because if you are not enjoying what you do as an artist, but your fans love it, then you're fucking miserable. And and it's kind of like a waste of time, in my opinion. So if you or me as an artist, am always loving what we are doing and pushing out. If the fans hate it, sucks to suck. Sorry, we'll do another one. And like, <laughs> like it sounds a little harsh, but it's so true. Because I feel like the reason why our fans resonate with what we do is because we share what is real and raw to us first and we have to love it. And there are some people who don't love it and that's totally fine. To me, that's what art does is it's supposed to uh, be a little bit bittersweet and you're supposed to love it and hate it all at the same time if you're doing your job correctly. So um, we really try to just focus on loving every single thing that we put out. And as long as that's the case, fuck yeah, dude. 
And, and how are you keeping things in check? Because as, as someone who's battled addiction and has come out the other side of recovery, tell me, when you start making music as a way to battle those demons and distract yourself so you can pour yourself into music, what happens now when your YouTube videos get millions of hits, You know, fans are lined outside of your tour bus, the more successful you get, the more temptations there are. And I, I would never compare the strife of one man to another, but I imagine Eminem's recovery would be harder than the next man because a snap of his fingers, he's able to have access to every vice known to man. So the things that helped your recovery can now be your downfall. Oh boy. Um, well for, for a while, I mean, for the first couple of years of Missio, I was very good at hiding uh, a lot of my struggles, even though I was saying outwardly that I was sober. Um, it, 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 I think it will always be a lifelong struggle for me in a lot of ways. And you are absolutely right. Being on the road where, you have access to anything or everything that you want at any time. It is, it, 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 I credit a lot of the people that I'm around, specifically David and Jaden, our drummer, who's those two are the dudes primarily out on the road with, uh, with me. And to be able to have guys who are constantly looking out for me and going, Hey, how are you doing? Hey, can we help you? Hey, we have no problem not drinking in the green room if you're having a hard day or whatever. To have that support um, on the road and off the road too with certain people back home, it constantly keeps me in check because you're right. At any point in time, I can go try and sneak a beer or, or go fucking do whatever drug I want to. And I have to realize like in the last couple of years of really, really being sober and seeing how my mental health has changed I'm tired of being miserable and and what made me the most miserable was getting fucked up every single night. Like, and, and when I look back and try to figure out why was I getting fucked up? Like what, what was the reasoning that at times there, there's no reason at all. I just like to self-destruct a lot of times and to have friends that know I like to self-destruct and I tend to self-destruct. There's just that constant brotherhood, almost like a family of just doing constant check-ins. Um, that really helped me. So I, I give a lot of credit to, to my homies. That's awesome. Man. Yeah. I want, I want to credit y'all's your perseverance and also the, uh, the songwriting you guys do. Like, for example, I, I look at, uh, your song, I run to you just, just on paper, just lyrics, no beats, no music. And on the surface, it appears simple, but if you're really good, there's, there's, t- there's talent. It's hidden in the simplicity. You know, I go to one of your songs on YouTube and I read the comments and I imagine the comments that I'm reading are only getting said by the result of compelling and effective songwriting. So like, like listen to this, uh, someone said this song, by Mizio basically strikes at my own insecurities. I feel like my boyfriend is singing this to me as I sit down and cry, attacking myself. I hate how my body looks. I hate how I talk. I hate myself in every aspect of insecurities, but he makes me smile. He makes me feel okay, but it hurts whenever I attack myself in one of my pain fits. And I sit down and I cry every time I hear the song because I feel it's him. And, you know, in a million years, I could not write a song that could make someone feel that way. But she connects with your lyrics in such a unique and personal way. So it's more about just being in a band. Like, you now have a responsibility. You now have fans that maybe rely on you and see you as role models or authority figures. And I can't imagine. You know, it's it's awesome. It's powerful. And you guys are doing an amazing job. Thanks, man. I, man, I wish that people could come in to the conversations that David and I have just kind of on our own when we're bitching or whatever because it's so easy for us to be like why aren't we doing more why aren't people getting Missio more blah 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 and we read comments like that or hear comments like that and it 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 makes me realize how 
special what we do is because we have a fan base that is so fucking loyal and it to me it only comes from us being genuine with them. It's honestly, man, just to be upfront with you, it would be so easy to take advantage of people in this day and age and try to convince you or like do whatever we needed to do on social media to get more traction. And 10, 10 times out of 10, we always have to go, how can we be the most real and impact the world? Even if it means less money, less fans, less engagement, we don't want to bullshit people. And it seems like the long road. And a lot of times it is the longer road. Just like we, we like to sleep well at night and we love our fans and we love helping our fans and impacting people. And at the end of the day, that's why we do what we do. It's why the name Missio is Missio. It's mission. It's, it's, we are on a mission to help change the world, even through dark lyrics or dark music or happy music or what, whatever the fuck it is. So, um, I really appreciate you, you, uh, mentioning that. I'll, I'll even get a little vulnerable myself. You know, I'll throw my hat in the ring here. You know, I'm, I'm not a young guy. I'm in my mid thirties. I got kids. Uh, I got a, a mortgage and everything, but you know what? My parents are in their sixties and in this last calendar year, this last 365, I had a similar situation where my father just had enough. I can relate to black roses. You know, it's weird when my mom who's 68 years old is going through a divorce, you know, but I, I can take that song and I know it's a personal song for you, uh, David, and you know, Matthew can help you write it and you guys craft the song together. And now, you know, I might not have, you know, pain fits like that, like that young lady did, but you know, I'm, I'm a guy in my mid thirties and I can find something to relate to. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, I'm still, dude, still, and the holidays are very hard for me. Um, I still struggle with it and I haven't, <laughs> I haven't like, I don't know if there's ever resolution to, to situations when your father leaves the family, you know, it, it causes, uh, like tidal waves that wreck through your life. And, uh, all that to say, man, there's a lot of people out there <laughs> that are going through that on all accounts. And that's always what we want to be speaking into. And like, that was a hard one for me. Uh, that was the first time I had had to be vulnerable, like beyond just like, I guess putting the words where, you know, or whatever, putting my own life on the line. And so it's rewarding, man, just, uh, and healing every time I get to talk to somebody who shared that experience, man, it makes us feel, everybody feel less alone, you know? No, I appreciate that. Cause when, when it happened, I, you know, I was going on like an Amazon, I was like, you know, let me look at some books like uh, uh, a children of, of divorced parents and how to cope. But it would always be for like a 12-year-old kid. It wouldn't be for like a guy in his mid-30s. So it, it, there's not that many resources out there for people like me. So, you know, I appreciate that. And also, I spoke with Skylar Gray a few episodes ago, and she writes, she songwrites for other people. I want, I want people to know that not everyone in your position gets to do that. She wrote a very personal song about her grandfather passing away. But she's a songwriter, and she sells these songs. So she, she sold that song to Will I Am, and Will I Am turned it into a dance track. So now you're in the club bobbing your fist to this dance song, and you have no idea that it was like this really personal song that she wrote about her grandfather passing away. <laughs> the, uh, the songwriting list on some of the modern songs these days, if you actually get into the weeds and look at it, it's like 27 people long. <laughs> and I'm just like, because, you know, 
like we're pretty Matthew and I are are pretty uh specific on how we feel about the the co-writing subject uh which is that a lot of times it's bullshit. <laughs> and again, this has just been something we've had to learn. We just cherish. We cherish our songwriting and like um to the point where I think in the beginning uh after we signed our first record deal, we we went out to LA we we were you know you say yes you don't say no you say yes let's say hey is there's there an opportunity to do something okay let's do it and then we learned that that may or may not be the best way to like control what you're what kind of art you're putting out but i think everybody has to do it differently right um so i i i love that there are that there is such an opportunity for songwriters these days to just hey you don't have to be a full on artist because to be honest all the work that goes into being a performing artist and touring like it it takes a lot of commitment to do to do both so it's cool that there are there's opportunities for all you know what i mean what about like matthew when you live in an airstream for a year do, do, does that present some uh, some songwriting challenges or maybe inspiration like around what month mark did it get really challenging? Let, let's say this month two different from like month 10. Well, the challenging <laughs> in the songwriting perspective, absolutely. Like there were times I'm, I'm literally playing snare parts with like a fucking kitchen wooden spoon, you know, like, uh, and like in the summer, it, it, the AC is so loud that when I was living in the Airstream, I was learning and kind of teaching myself a little bit about engineering for the first time. Um, and I remember trying to do these like these live takes on vocal or, or guitar or whatever, and just hearing this, just like this this AC in the background as it's like you know, burning hot because that was this summertime in in Texas. You know, is like 104. So you either keep the AC on or you turn it off. But you're in a metal tube, so if you turn it off, you're <laughs> fucked. So. Um, I, I would say I really enjoyed. That's actually one of my favorite times of my life. Is is kind of stripping everything away from the material possessions and trying to get rid of a bunch of stuff and just living with less, uh, which is, is a really beautiful time. But um, I would say after about eight months in an Airstream, because I'm a tall dude, I'm 6'2", so uh, taking showers and not being able to stand up all the way every day sucks and uh, not having hot water in the winter really sucks. So... I was, uh, I, luckily, actually, I think it's, I credit the reason why David and I have worked together so well for a long time is we had kind of just met around that time we were working on an album, the actually the first Missio EP, and he and his wife were looking for a new roommate. And I was like, hey, shit, man, I'm on the way out of this Airstream, so if you have an extra room, I am on my way in. Yeah, I believe your question was, is your shower hot? It's it's funny. I, I listened to this podcast called How I Built This, and uh, I love that. Oh, you love so you listen to it, yeah? And oh, I love it. Uh, the Tony Shea episode from 2017 popped back up in the feed because he recently died. He's the former CEO of Zappos, and the guy is really weird because he built this billion dollar business from a shoe company, yet he hates shoes. You know, he only owns like a pair of sandals, but he's got like unlimited amount of money, and he's been a millionaire since he's been in his early twenties. And the host, Guy Raz, asked him, like, you know, basically, how are you living? And he was like, I live in an Airstream. And Guy was like, you know, I don't understand. Like, you can live in the biggest mansion in California. Why do you live in a steel trailer? And he said, you know, a question that he likes to ask people is, if your house was on fire, what is the one thing you would take before exiting? And he said, if my house was on fire, I would just get my phone and leave. So, like you said, you know, it's very minimalistic. It's very Marie Kondo. It's a very... 
I don't know, but at the same time, it's kind of sad because I'd be running around getting family photo albums and my laptop, my hard drive and vinyl records and my kids and my dogs, and maybe I'm not doing it right. (laughs) Well, I mean, dude, we're all on our own journey. I I assure you that. And and we have to do constant checks on our own journeys because, dude, there are times like early on when we signed our first record deal. I was like, I want to be fucking rich. I want a dope-ass mansion. I want badass cars. And you just start to, as you start kind of living life and experiencing really awesome things that you never thought you would, you, uh, like for me, I, I would come back from these amazing experiences and these tours and I would still have these little holes in my soul. And I couldn't figure out why, because I thought those were the things that were going to fix me. And I think a lot of times we as a culture, especially in American culture, we look at money and material possessions and we go, those things are going to fix me. And then you get those things and you look at how many rich people are miserable. And it's like, okay, well, clearly those don't fix things. So what are active ways in our own lives that we can take or steps or things that we can get rid of to be happy and content? If that means less is more, then fantastic. Um, and if it means that, that you're rich and you want to buy a big-ass mansion and that makes you happy, also awesome. You know, It's like there's no wrong or right way is what I'm learning as I grow older. As artists, we're looking at the world and figuring out what our worldview and everybody this year is changing and like considering all sorts of things because of in light of all the new situations that we've been put in. So I, you know, on one hand, I subscribe to what he, what that dude is saying about isolating yourself and getting rid of all this, but it, it, Matthew's right. It's whatever works and whatever gets you through to the next step on your journey because sometimes you got to shed some stuff and sometimes it's like it's like if you're allergic to something in your diet you may never know until you do a cold like purge and start over and figuring out what is it that i am actually what is causing this this feeling in me or this maybe you know what i'm saying so everybody just has to follow their follow their gut i would say for me, it would be like if I, yeah, I would immediately take my advance and go buy a diamond chain for sure. I'm human, whatever. <laughs> but, but when I tour in, in, in Hungary and, I, and then I realized that the annual income there is only $7,000 and someone's using that money to buy a concert ticket, th- then I realized, oh, there's a deep, deep appreciation for my music. You know, I think in the Czech Republic, the annual salary is 15000 So if you're selling out, a venue over there it's that's humbling because these people don't get paid that much and they're using that money to see you dude to be honest in real in a real way i think our whole way that we viewed uh missio changed after the like a couple times over into eastern europe where is by some un unbelievable circumstances it's probably the place in the world that we're the biggest we have the most number of fans russia and eastern uh eastern europe and we know how hard we've we've toured in the u.s and how many marketing dollars and how much has gone into radio play and how many like we know how hard we've worked on the u.s market to break and 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 then to just see that stuff naturally happen and to know what it represents like you said like it just it humbled us in a way like, but humbled us. And then also gave us extreme confidence that we could continue to do, follow the art, follow the gut and that it would lead to somewhere, you know, on, on a, on a real tangible level. And I think that's why we enjoyed writing this, the last record so much is exactly because it's like just going over there 
it changed the game, man. It changed the game on so many levels that I honestly can't even, I don't have the words to fully describe yet because I think we're still making sense of it all, but it's profound. We are human, we are strong. Willing flowers blooming alone. Hate is hate and love is love. I don't know why we can't rise above. Well, I think everything that we've talked about, you guys say that this is your best album yet because you've grown musically and you matured. However, there's that old adage of you have 25 years to write your first album and six months to write your second. You know what I mean? So how do you ensure that every album you put out is better and better? Because that's a tall order. That is a very tall order. Um, I'm going to say a short answer. Trust the process. We have a process that we love, and, and which, which is just getting together with your homies and writing music and, and always making sure we stay inspired. You know, As long as you keep the target on the right things at the core and not like the point er, that you mentioned earlier of like trying to recreate a moment that doesn't exist in the current moment, like or forcing something, then I think at that point the target gets blurry. That very first song went out, I Run To You. That was the first big push online, and this was around the time where blogs were really popping and Hype Machine was a thing, right? And I had randomly hit up this, uh, this blog called Hilly Dilly based in Canada. And overnight, I, uh, I woke up and there were 1,500 plays on I Run To You. And at the time, that was the most, I mean, 1,500 plays was unheard of for me because typically it would take months to get 1,500 plays. And I had to remember that moment because now looking, you know, we're almost at a billion streams, um, which is insane to me. And so often I'm like, well, God damn it. Why didn't this single get more than a million plays in the first, you know, whatever. And I have to, I have to remind myself because I thought early on that signing a major label deal would fix or make Missio just blow up or signing a major publishing deal. And what I try to tell artists is, Remember that moment, that first time where you started to see people resonating with your song or your songs and that feeling that you had. If you get that feeling every time you write a song, it doesn't matter if you're signed to a major label, if you have a giant manager, if you have the world behind you, that feeling that you got writing that song is what other people are going to experience around the world when they hear that same song. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to have that experience, but people will have that experience. And those people that latch on to that feeling are the ones that will be loyal to you as long as you keep trusting that feeling in yourself. So 
I always want to encourage young artists to trust that gut feeling and, and to, to exact what David said, trust the process and don't be discouraged if some major label doesn't, doesn't want to sign you, whatever, because ultimately that doesn't matter. The only people that matter are the fans that are supporting you specifically. Labels at the end of the day, don't give a fuck about you. Publishers don't give a fuck about you. Managers, honestly, rarely, it's very rare when they actually give a fuck about you as a person. Trust the process. Trust that initial feeling as, as an artist when you write your songs and the rest. I mean, literally, it's just, it, it will come. I promise. Well, without getting too sappy, I just want to say the Missio Mafia, your your friendship, the the handwritten notes you guys give, the, the VIP meetings after a show you provide. You know, I've, I've lost my absolute best friends during this pandemic. And I'm not going to say it's because of the pandemic, but I'm not the only one. And divorce rates are through the roof and people are stressed and they're demanding stimulus checks to buy groceries and it's like, okay, what is it about David and Matthew that keeps their bond so tight? Is it their record contract? No. Is it money? No. But whatever it is, the world needs more of it. That's for sure. Man, thank you, dude. Thank Thanks, you, man. man. Yeah, that's very sweet. La- last question, though. On this record, how much effort went into getting a Kendrick Lamar feature? <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> a lack of money, bro. <laughs> dude, I would, be, I would be satisfied at this point with a new Kendrick Lamar song, man. Forget about him doing anything with Missio. It's been too long. We need, we need some Kendrick in our lives. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you too. Your time. I really do. I think 90% of this podcast is hip hop. So I always welcome the change of perspective when it comes to other genres. And I know when you were on tour, you listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm not sure how much you listen nowadays, but keep me in rotation and I'd be honored. Dude. Uh, genuinely, when I say this has probably been the best podcast we've done all year, I mean that. So thank you for, for taking the time and doing your research. And, yeah. and it's been awesome. Oh, man, you guys have made my year, man. Thank you. (laughs) Of course. Of course, man.